Psalm 85, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your, la to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins, Selhah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, and that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, in, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to all those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Amen. Thanks, Alan. Good morning, everyone. We are, as a church, just one week away from celebrating our 15th anniversary as a church. Uh, next Sunday, it's going to be a great celebration. We're going to have a special service. We'll have the kids in here with us to celebrate together. And after service, we're going to have a potluck lunch together where we can hang out and get extra time together eating. If you would like to bring something to contribute to the potluck and you're not in any of the church WhatsApp groups, let me know after service and we can add you to the potluck WhatsApp group where everyone's signing up with the foods that they're going to bring. It sounds so delicious. I'm so excited for it. Uh, and like we just shared, today we have an opportunity after service to celebrate again another way that God has been good and faithful to us as a church with Picky's baptism. We are taking the few weeks leading up to our church anniversary celebration to celebrate and look at God's faithfulness, to learn about what it means for him to be a faithful God. And we've been doing that from the book of Psalms. And today we're gonna look at Psalm chapter 85. And Psalm 85, it's written during a time when things are not going well for the nation of Israel. There was probably some specific event that inspired this psalm to be written. We have no idea what it was. We have no idea when it was written. We know it was written by this group called the Sons of Korah, but like scholars are so divided on their thoughts of what inspired this that their guesses of when it was written are hundreds of years apart from each other. We really have no idea when it's written. But that lack of clarity about what specific event inspired it to be written or when specifically it was written is actually one of the things that gives this Psalm, Psalm 85, its power today. Because the reality is that everyone, every, every follower of Jesus as an individual, every community of faith as a group, everyone goes through times like the people are experiencing as they write this, where things are not going well. Times when it feels like God might be angry with us and he might just stay that way forever. 
times where God feels far away, times where maybe it feels like God's goodness might just be a thing of the past and it's done and we're never gonna get back there and it's just gonna be hard from now on. And this Psalm, it strikes this balance where it's specific enough that when we go through those times, we can pray it ourselves and have it be a truly heartfelt prayer that we can use to address the circumstances that we're going through. But it's general enough that no matter what circumstances, what hard circumstances we're facing, we can use the same prayer over and over again throughout our lives for the different circumstances we face. And as we read through Psalm 85, there's this Hebrew word that appears over and over throughout this Psalm that actually helps give some structure to the Psalm. That our, our main points today are gonna to be structured around this Hebrew word. Now, the, the unfortunate thing is that in pretty much every English tra- translation, they translate this Hebrew word into a different English word, like every time it appears in this chapter. So you can't just look at the chapter and be like, oh yeah, I see it's right here, 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 here. The, the word in Hebrew, you don't need to say it, but the Hebrew word is something called shuv. It's like shove with an ooh, shuv. And it typically means to turn, like that. But in today's chapter, it can be translated as a bunch of different things. It's also translated in Psalm 85 as restore and again and turn back. So you can see how it'd be confusing to find where this appears through reading the English. But we're gonna use that Hebrew word as our structure for today's sermon to give us an outline and a skeleton. And what we're gonna see as we look at this chapter through the lens of this word is that even when God seems far away, his faithfulness makes things turn out well. See, I had to incorporate turn into the main idea since that's the main word that we're gonna be working around in our outline. We're gonna look at past turnings, hope for turnings, a dangerous turning, and the end of turnings. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you're a God who hears your people's prayers. You're a God who cares about us and the things that we're going through in life. That when we face hard times, we can bring them to you. And that you are a God who steps in, in the middle of our hard times, to bring salvation and to bring peace. We pray that as we look at your word today, that we would just be able to see your faithfulness more clearly, that we'd be able to trust in you more deeply, that we would love you more because of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see when we look at Psalm 85 is past turnings. This Psalm, it starts by looking backwards. It says in the first couple of verses, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now these writers, it's a group of people and they are looking back on a time in the past where God did great things for their nation. And notice something about this opening line. They're they're looking back in the past, but they're not just looking back on the past glory days of their nation where times were better than they are now. They're looking back on a time when God stepped in to bring healing and salvation and forgiveness to his people when they didn't deserve it. It's not just, oh, things used to be better back in the day. It's at some point in the past, God stepped in and did amazing, wonderful things for us that we didn't deserve. And here's why that's important to distinguish. 
Because if you look back on the past glory days of your nation or of the world, and you want to revive them, that can be a really dangerous thing, right? Because what happens is when you look back on the past glory days and you're upset because they're not here anymore, you have to figure out whose fault it is that, that they're not here anymore. And then you find those people and you blame them as the villains and the bad guys and you feel justified in mistreating them. If you don't believe that's the case, just look at all the racial discrimination in the States the past few years from people trying to make America great again, right? That's what happens when we get this narrative. Things used to be better. Some bad guys destroyed it. Now we must mistreat the bad guys to get things back to the way they were. But that's not what they're doing here. Instead, they're looking back at a time in their nation's history where God stepped in and he did good things for them as a nation, specifically good things that they didn't deserve. And we see this in a few places here. In verse two, he spe- they specifically say, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. The people had done things that were wrong. They did not deserve God's blessing. It's not that they were somehow better as a nation back then and, and things were going well because they were such a great nation. No, they had messed up. They had failed. They had done things wrong but God stepped in to save them from themselves. Instead of sending the anger and wrath that they deserved, he kept it back. In fact, even in verse one, when it says that God was favorable to them, that points to the picture of God doing great things for them as a nation that they didn't deserve. Because in Hebrew, favorable, it doesn't just mean nice. It doesn't just mean, oh, I like them. It actually refers to finding someone or something to be acceptable. And it's usually used in a context where the relationship was broken and reconciliation has taken place. So the fact that God was favorable points to the fact that they had done things, things had happened that would have justified God acting unfavorably towards them. But he didn't. He forgave them. He acted favorably towards them. And here's why this is such an important thing for us to realize that they're celebrating God's past forgiveness rather than just looking back to glory days and trying to restore them. Like I've already said, looking back to the glory days, trying to restore them, it leads to finding villains that we can blame and punish for everything that's gone wrong in our nation. But when we instead look back on the action of God, the good action of God for us in the past, and we remember what he's done before in the face of situations that are difficult and hard, what does that lead us to? It leads us to prayer. It leads us to take our concerns and fears and anxieties and guilt about what's happening today and bring it back to God and hope that the God who was faithful to work for us in the past will be faithful again to step in and fix them in the future. It makes us stop looking to ourselves for solutions and instead it turns us towards God. And I mentioned this word turn, it shows up a bunch in the Hebrew in this, in this passage. We see it in verse one, it's translated as restored. In verse three, it's translated as turned. So the picture is in the past, the people did things that deserved, deserved judgment and God turned away and did something different than what they deserved. He got them, he brought them good instead of the bad that they deserved. And because of that, the nation was ex- experiencing good fortune. They had blessings that they didn't deserve. There was prosperity in the land that the the people were not great, 
The people were doing lots of wrong things, but God forgave them. He transformed them. He brought them blessing they didn't deserve. He turned away from the faith that they deserved. And this past faithfulness to forgive on God's part, it leads the people to come to God today, again, when they're facing a time as a nation that's hard. When it feels like maybe he's not forgiving right now. Maybe he's turned his anger towards us now. Which brings us to our second section, the hope for turnings. Because as Psalm 85 is being written, those good times are in the past. Something's happened at some point. Again, we don't know what, we don't know when, but things have changed. Now, instead of experiencing God's favor, verses four and five say that they are experiencing his indignation and his anger. So these people, they're praying, but they're sad. They're upset because all they've seen from God lately is anger. It's him being upset. And according to these verses, it's been going on so long that they're wondering if it's just going to be this way forever. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. As they reflect on their current circumstances, they ask for another turning. They say, God, you turned away from your anger and your wrath before. Do it again. And so we have this Hebrew word, shuv, appear twice again in this section. In verse four, it's translated as restore. In verse six, it's translated as again. They've heard of God's wonderful works in the past. They've heard of his faithful character. And now they want to not just hear about these things, they want to experience them in their own day. And so they pray for another turning, for God to turn away from his anger again so that they can experience blessing like the nation did in the past. And they make this prayer because they've heard of God's faithfulness. They know his character, but they also make this prayer because they are desperate. We see this desperation in verse six when it says, will you not revive us again? And if you've been around churches for any length of time, I know revival can often sound like a very churchy word, right? It's a time where you plan these special events and people come out and everyone gets excited about church and the attendance goes up and yay. But actually, if you think about what the word revival literally means, it, it means taking something that's dead and bringing it back to life. It's like if someone has a heart attack and they go into cardiac arrest and they come out and use a defibrillator to shock them back to life. They've just revived that person. The person was no more heartbeat. They're dead. Boom, alive again. That's what it looks like to revive someone. The people look at their situation. They see how desperate it is. And their prayer literally means, God, we are dead. You are the only one who can make us alive again. So let me ask you, when you feel desperate, when you feel like life is out of control and things are just hard, what do you do? Do you just redouble your efforts and say, I'm going to try harder this time. I'm going to get it fixed. I'm going to make things right. Do you look for people around you who can step in and rescue you? 
Or like these people, do you turn to God for your help? Do you turn to prayer and ask God to step in and do for you what nobody else can do for you? Do you know that God loves it when we pray prayers like this one? The Bible is clear that spiritually, every single one of us is born dead. If you don't believe that, just read Ephesians chapter two this week. The opening line is, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which we all once walked, right? All of us are born spiritually dead and dead people are incapable of doing anything to give themselves life. If someone has a heart attack and goes into cardiac arrest, they're not going out to get the medical gear to shock themselves back to life. That's not how it works. For us to have any type of spiritual life in us or any type of any life in us, the only way to get that is for God to do a miracle and give us that life as a gift. So when we pray desperate prayers like this, revive us again. We, we can't do anything for ourselves, God. We need you to step in and do it for us. He loves prayers like that because they recognize where we truly come from spiritually. And they're asking God to do what only he can do. And because of that, when he answers these prayers, only he can get the praise. Right? It, it, the person who has the heart attack, they're in cardiac arrest and they get shocked back to life. They don't jump up and start running around and being like, I'm so great, I survived the heart attack. No, they get up and hug the person who shocked them back to life because they're so thankful that someone else came in and did for them what they could not do for themselves. They celebrate the medical people who saved them. And in the same way, when God answers this prayer for him to give us this spiritual life that we can't accomplish for ourselves, it leads to us rejoicing in him. We see that here in verse six. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? When God takes spiritually dead people and makes them alive, he receives praise. Not because he forces us to praise him as some sort of payment for services received. No, because it's the most natural thing to do. When someone does something amazing for you, you celebrate them. You're thankful to them. You're so overflowing with joy that you can't keep it inside. And so these people, they're going through a tough time. They're praying for God to work and they're appealing to God's past faithfulness, but they're also appealing to this fact that, that God, if you do work, it's gonna result in your name being celebrated, which leads them next to an expectant hope, but also a warning, which brings us to a dangerous turning. See, they presented their prayer to God and now they stop. After making this prayer, they say, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. They've said what they need to say. And now they want to listen to see if God has anything to say in response. And God doesn't, or the passage doesn't tell us what specific words God speaks to them in this moment. And again, I wonder if the reason for that is that this psalm is written to be used over and over again in different circumstances, different trials, different difficult times. And each time that this is prayed by God's people and sung by God's people, the people praying are gonna benefit from hearing a fresh word from God that speaks directly to their situation. 
So how about you? When you're praying for God to work in your situations, do you ever take time to just be quiet and wait for God to speak? That's the practice in prayer that they're modeling for us here. And throughout the Bible, God is presented as a God who speaks. You know, in the church that I grew up in, this idea of, of stopping your praying to just listen for God to speak, they would have been like, don't do that. That's a bad thing. God has spoken once for all time in the Bible. We shouldn't expect anything fresh and new today. And it's true that God has spoken once for all in the Bible. But if you read the Bible that he's given us, throughout the Bible, he often, when his people pray to him, he often gives them words of encouragement or guidance or correction. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he could still do this today. Now, as I say that, remember the Bible is his once for all spoken word. So if you're trying to listen to God and you think you're hearing something that he's saying and it doesn't line up with what the Bible says, if it's like opposed to the Bible, you are not hearing from God, right? If you're like, dear God, should I murder this person? And you stop and listen. And it's like, yes, you should. That is not God speaking. <laughs> but if you're like, dear God, should I murder this person? And, and you just stop and listen. It's like, maybe you should learn to forgive them and try to show them love instead. That could be God speaking to you and giving you guidance in your specific circumstance. The Bible says, if you're a Christian, God has sent the Holy Spirit to live inside you, to guide you in how to live life. And one of the ways that he can guide us is by speaking to us and guiding us and prompting us to help us learn to love and obey and follow him each day. But again, anytime he does that, it's gonna line up with what the Bible says, not oppose what the Bible says. And like I said, the people praying Psalm 85, they, they present their case to God, they stop to listen, and it doesn't tell us what exactly God says to them in that moment. But even though it doesn't share the specific response God gives to them, it expresses confidence about the tone and the content of his response and what it's gonna be. They're confident that when God speaks, it will be a word of peace. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Now in English, when we hear the word peace, we think fighting stops, right? That's, that's what the word peace typically means in English. But the Hebrew word is, is a word shalom, and it's a much, much bigger word than just fighting stop. It means holistic well-being in every area of life. So here's the difference between our idea of peace and their idea of peace. Think of the war in Ukraine. What does it take for there to be peace in Ukraine right now? We would say, you call a ceasefire, all the troops move out of the occupied areas, then you have peace. This, this idea of shalom as peace though, says you need something more than that. Because even though the fighting has stopped, even though the troops have left, there are still houses and buildings and infrastructure that are just rubble heaps. The crops of the country have been destroyed. The economy is ruined. The animosity that started the war hasn't gone away. So for there to be shalom, between Russia and Ukraine, you don't just need a ceasefire and a removal of troops, but you need all the buildings and houses and infrastructure that have been torn down to be rebuilt. 
You need the people who have been displaced to be able to come back to their homes. You need the fields to grow their crops again and the economy to start operating properly and reconciliation of healed relationships. There's no more underlying desire to fight there. When it says in this passage that God will speak peace to his people, it's not saying I'm going to call a ceasefire and just leave things as they are. It's talking about a complete reversal of fortune, that he's going to turn away from any type of hostility that has been coming towards them and instead bring them holistic well-being and abundance. It's not just a spiritual blessing. It's going to manifest itself in every area of life. It's, they're expressing confidence that God is going to show them abundant favor. And yet this confidence also comes with a fear. It says at the end of verse eight, but let them not turn back to folly. Guess what Hebrew word we have here? Shuv again, turn. Turn back is that Hebrew word shuv. It's not just that God turns or can turn, but the people can turn too. And the danger is that if God is turning towards his people to bless them, and in that same moment, the people turn away from God, That's an incredibly dangerous thing to do. The writers have this fear that even as God steps in to work and save his people, the people could at the same time start working to destroy themselves by moving themselves out of line with what God is doing, by continuing to bring that harm and hurt and hostility that God wants to heal, them just stepping in and continuing it. And this continues to be a danger in our world and in the church today. We still have a God who wants to bring his people, all of us who trust in him, this shalom, this holistic well-being, blessing in all of life. But when we foolishly turn from him, we cut ourselves off from his blessings. We move out of line with what he's trying to do. We can actually work against him. It can even happen in the church. Like it happens in the church when people gossip about one another. It happens in the church when greed and jealousy get in the way of our relationships with one another. It happens when there's unhealthy competition between churches and churches are trying to steal people from other churches so they can look at the other church and be like, we're better than you. It can happen in the church when we hold on to unforgiveness All these things, they're things that God hates because they tear down and they destroy the people that he loves, the people that he wants to bring blessing to. They they step in and they try and cut off the blessing that God has for these people. Turning back to folly, turning away from God as he prepares to shower his people with blessings. It was a danger in the ancient world and it's a danger today. But there's a hope among these writers that this won't happen. There's a hope that as they take time to listen, God himself will come to be with them. We see this in verse nine. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. They're confident that God will bring his salvation near so that glory may dwell in our land. And again, in our world, this idea of glory probably feels really abstract. If you try and picture glory in your mind, I don't know what picture comes to mind. I sort of picture like a glowing light. And if I picture a glory dwelling in the land, 
I just sort of picture a glowing light hovering over some place in the middle of nowhere. I don't know. It's, I don't know if that's the same picture you have, but it just feels very vague, right? But to people in ancient Israel, this was not a vague idea at all. This was a very concrete thing that was centered in a concrete place because they knew God's promise that his glory would dwell in the midst of his people in the temple. The temple was a building built in the middle of Israel with this goal that it would be the place where God dwells among his people. It's where his glory, where the essence of who he is lives in the middle of his nation. So when they talk about glory dwelling in our land, it's not just some hope that there'll be some shining presence just hovering somewhere that we can maybe find, maybe not. It's a hope that God's presence will be in the temple, that there's a place where we can come and connect with God and know him personally and have a relationship with him. And that blessings will flow from that temple out into the nation and bring abundant blessings into the lives of the people throughout the country. See, the people realized they they wanted all sorts of blessings, including material ones. But they knew the greatest blessing, the thing that makes everything else, true blessings, is God's presence with us. That's the thing that takes all these other blessings and makes them true blessings. Like church, if we could pack out this auditorium, it was so full that, that we couldn't even all fit in here. We needed to find a bigger place or move to two services. And the offering money was more than we could knew what to do with but God's presence wasn't with us as we met. Would that be a a fair trade-off? No. What makes us the people of God is God's presence with us. That's what takes every other seeming blessing and turns it into a true blessing. Without God's presence in the midst of them or in the midst of us, other blessings lose their power. The purpose of God bringing this salvation, bringing this forgiveness is so that he can dwell in the midst of them, so that he can dwell in the midst of us. It's about a relationship. It's about God being with us, being part of our lives. God is not just an abstract idea that we can learn about in a textbook. He's a person who we can get to know as we live life with him every day, as he lives in the midst of us. It's true then, it's true now. It was part of why we can still listen for him to speak because he's a person. People speak. People with relationships with one another speak to one another. And the the writers of the psalm, they have a hope. Their hope is that as God speaks this peace, this shalom to his people, and they avoid turning back to folly, and salvation draws near to the people, and glory dwells in the land, that God lives with them in their midst, that it will bring the end of turning. See, in this final section of the chapter, in verses 10 to 13, the word shuv, turn, it disappears completely. The world, once again, becomes the way that it's supposed to be. And so there's no more need to change direction, to turn from the way that we're going. Instead, from this point on, what we need is simply to continue on the path that's already been established. Verses 10 and 11 say, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. 
See, all these attributes listed in these verses, they're attributes of God that are meant to become the attributes of his people as they follow him. So these verses, they paint a picture of what life is going to look like when everything is as it's meant to be on earth and in heaven. Everything is at peace. Everything is the way that it's supposed to be. Relationships are healthy and healed. And it seems like the hope is that as people live out one side of these attributes, God will reach down and meet them with the other half. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know that picture of Michel- Michelangelo's creation of Adam where like God's reaching out from heaven and Adam's reaching up and they're like almost touching like this. Like it reminds me of that. Like the picture is that if we are living this way, if we're doing the things that it calls us to do, that God responds by reaching down and there's this meeting point where heaven and earth come together and everything is blessed. Everything is wonderful. Everything is amazing. That's the ideal. So if people live with steadfast love, love that keeps God's covenant, then he will show them his faithfulness. If people live with righteousness, if we set right what we've made wrong in the land, that God is going to bring us this shalom, this holistic well-being. That if the people live with faithfulness and faithfulness springs up from the ground, that God's going to make things right with them and righteousness will look down from the sky. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful way to live? A wonderful world to live in? where everyone lives like they're supposed to and God meets us halfway and showers all of us with blessings. Doesn't that sound great? Does it sound a little too wonderful, maybe too good to be true? Because there's a problem here, right? The reason this prayer is being prayed in the first place is that none of these things are happening. Israel has not lived in the way that God has called them to. They've turned to folly instead. And so God has not sent them blessings or prosperity or shalom to the land. And praying about the problem is a great step. But do we really expect that the moment we end our prayer and say amen, that suddenly all of our problems are going to disappear and we're just going to live perfectly from now on? No. I'm confident in God's ability to keep his end of the deal. He's pretty faithful. He can do it. I'm not confident in my ability to keep my end of that deal. I don't know about you, after a few decades of experience being me, I can tell you that I, not only daily, but several times a day, fail to live up to the standards that are listed in these verses, which means that I daily fall short of deserving God to shower me with blessings like these verses say he will. And when I said just a minute ago that I don't know about you, I lied because this book tells me all about you and that you mess up just as much as I do, that we're all in trouble, right? None of us have done what it takes to live up to this standard for God to meet us halfway and everything to be perfect in the world. So for all of us, in order to experience this blessing that's promised here in these verses, we need to do something that we are incapable of doing. So how can that be good news for us? Well, it can only be good news if there's someone else, if there's a perfect human being who can come in and fulfill our end of the bargain for us. We need someone who as a fully human being can fulfill God's requirements and help reach up to God for us. And ultimately, since none of us can do that, we need God to do it for us. 
which is why the gospel, this message, this good news of God's salvation is so beautiful because in Jesus, God himself came down to earth. He lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He earned all this blessing. He successfully did what it takes to reach up to God, but that still doesn't fix our problem, does it? Because he earned it for himself, but we're still out here messing up every day, which is why his death on the cross is so important. Because on the cross, Jesus traded places with us. All the anger and indignation that this says we deserve for our behavior, Jesus took it on himself. He traded places. He took our place so that he could give us all the steadfast love, all the faithfulness, all the righteousness, all the peace and shalom that he deserved. The original authors of this psalm, they couldn't have known this, but the only way all these things can truly become ours in a lasting way is through the cross. Through the cross, the world is finally able to become the way it was meant to be. And if we believe that Jesus has given us this life on the cross, that he's rescued us and and brought us into a place where we can receive God's blessing, what does it look like to respond properly to that? Well, verses 12 and 13 point to that says, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The chapter ends with God's footsteps. God is moving in one direction. He's no longer turning, but he's continuing in the same direction. He turned to rescue us. And now the invitation is for us to follow him in the way that he's going. And how do we follow him now that he's rescued us, now that he's showered us with the blessings we don't deserve? We respond by doing the things that he does. Not because it will make him love us, but because he already loves us, because he's already rescued us. So we live with steadfast love. The Hebrew word that's translated as steadfast love, it literally means love that keeps covenants. So it means being people of our word, even when it costs us. It means sticking with our spouses, even when they're difficult. It means following through on the th- doing the things we said we'd do. We live with faithfulness. The Hebrew word for faithfulness, it refer- refers to truth and dependability and faithfulness. So there's a lot of overlap between living with steadfast love and living with faithfulness. But this also draws in this idea of speaking the truth, even when that might make us look bad. It's living in a way where people know they can count on us because we're going to be there for them like we said we would. We live with righteousness. This is a word that refers to having right relationships. It's it's conducting our relationships with fairness and generosity. It means doing good to others when we have the chance, even if they're different than us. Maybe they come from a different socioeconomic group or a different ethnic group or We feel like they've mistreated us in the past, seeking to do good to everyone when we have the chance, serving the poor, helping equip them to be able to provide better for themselves and their families in the future. And we live in a way that seeks peace or seeks shalom. Again, this is about holistic well-being. It's about living in a way that, that weaves the fabric of society and relationships back together. It mends what's been broken. It's seeking to bring peace to conflicts but not just an end to hostility and a ceasefire, but actually restoration, reconciliation, strength where there was brokenness before. And again, we live these ways, not because we're trying to earn our way back to God, but as a response 
to the God who stepped in and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So church, again, there will be times in your life, in our life as a church, where it's hard, where it feels like God is distant, maybe he's angry, and maybe it's just gonna last this way forever. But in those times, the proper response is not to buckle down and take matters into our own hands. It's to turn to God in prayer and trust him to fix it. And as we do this, we seek to follow and obey him, realizing our effort can never deserve his favor. But Jesus came to rescue us and give us God's favor as a gift. And his sacrifice empowers us to live obediently to God in a way that, that brings God's blessing to the world around us through our actions. He uses us as a means of bringing that blessing that he wants to send on the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are a God who, who turns away from the anger that we deserve, who turns away from punishing us when we mess up. That you're a God who forgives, who restores, who brings peace and holistic well-being. We thank you that you're faithful, that you can be depended on to do the things that you say you'll do. And I pray this week that you would help us to remember your character and live obediently to you in light of that character, that you would make us like you, people of steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.